Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's alt-rock stars have been writing hits since they joined together almost two decades ago. Like, their band is old enough to go to college. Success did not come easy, however. They've really put in the dirty work to get where they are today. With eight albums, billions of streams, platinum and gold singles, countless tours, and too many bras thrown on stage to count, these guys have really proven that... It was never a phase, Mom. It's a lifestyle. These guys aren't just warped tour legends. They're also great collaborators. That's why they've thrived for so long. And the writer is, are, my friends, Alex Gaskart and Jack Barricat of All Time Low. Hey. Yes. Love Nicely the intro. done. That's a good Live read. Live for the intros. Strong read. Strong uh, read. I read slowly because I'm a terrible reader. And I feel like the more dramatic I make it, the slower I can be. And then I make fewer mistakes. You know, I have a tendency <laughs> when reading like a script back or like a prompter or something, I read way too fast. Anytime I do like radio liners and, or anything like that, I usually get notes back from people being like, hey, can you chill out a little <laughs> bit? It's usually because I bang them out in the morning, and I've had a coffee, and my heart's pumping, and my blood's going. And I'm just like, let's let's hammer these out. But yeah, it's I gotta. I like your pace. You got a good pace. Um, what would your liner be if we were a radio station? What would it sound like? Ooh, it's always it's always like a really generic line, but then it's like, but make it your own in brackets at the end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and usually, I just read that out loud. Just make hey, it your own. Is, hey, this is Alex Gascart from All Time Low, and you're listening to And the Writer Ross, Is. Yeah. <laughs> Ross Golan, and the Writer Is. But make it your own. But make it but your make own. It. Uh, okay, so I obviously know both of you guys pretty well, uh, but the rest of the world may not. So let's pretend like I don't know you guys really well. Uh, sure. Usually we have sort of one at a time, but you guys, what's your... The from uh, each person do like a cliff's notes of life before you guys met, you know, to uh, to when you guys met. I just that way we can get a little bit 
of each of your histories. Uh, Alex, you go first. Tell me yeah. about about you know birth to all time low. Sure. So I was born in the UK. Um, my uh, dad worked in hi fi, and my mom took real good care of me and made sure that I uh, achieved all my dreams um, as a young boy. And uh, we we moved to the states for my dad's work when I was seven. Uh, then I went to uh, private school for many years, and then switched to public school, and that's where I met Jack. Uh, my first year in eighth grade, <clears throat> and we sort of we sort of hit it off real quick. We had like really similar tastes in a lot of music, and um, just kind of liked doing uh, hood rat stuff with our friends, and so we sort of <laughs> we matched up quickly. And um, what yeah, is hood, was, what what is hood rat stuff? I have no idea. Honestly, oh, dude, we used, just, we, we used to take we used to skateboard around the suburbs and like think we were doing. I, I couldn't bad skateboard though, so I would just carry one with me. You know how there was always the kid who just would have just <laughs> ha- he had to have one with him. But yeah, we would just hang out outside movie theaters with skateboards and get in the trouble, man. Yeah, usually it was just being asked to leave for for loitering too much. <laughs> uh, Jack, were you were you born in eighth grade? Or did I you was have a yeah. So when Alex that? met me, that was my first year on Earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> super advanced. No, but um, I actually was born in Lebanon, and I was born in, in uh, outside Beirut in '88 when the war was happening. So my parents, literally, my mom like fled a war with like me as a baby in her arms, and k- took us to Baltimore so we could have a better life. And so I grew up in Baltimore and. Um, when Alex got asked to leave private school in eighth grade, um, <laughs> I, did, I didn't. I didn't get asked to leave. Don't. That's revisionist history. I was a public school kid, and Alex. Uh, Alex came into our school in eighth grade, and pretty early on, yeah, we just connected on music. Um, he introduced me to a lot are... of different types of music, as I did with him, as well. And then we started. We started the band. Started a band. Both of you guys are immigrants. We are. We are. Do you think that that had something to do with you guys connecting? I think so because from an early age and like when we first started hanging out, our parents also connected and became pretty close friends. Um, so I think there was an aspect like within both of our families of like having a shared common experience and like that got all of us closer in general. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, Jack and I looked out for each other and became really close friends. And I think to a larger extent, our families did that for one another as well. And they kind of bonded over. Um, you know, very different walks of life, and how how we got to the states were different circumstances. But um, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think the families kind of came together because of that common understanding. Most people who um, end up being friends in junior high who want to be, or I guess, or eighth grade, I guess, is still junior high. Uh, you know, most most people who want to start bands, the bands usually don't become actual bands. <laughs> um, when was it that you first realized that you guys actually make good music together, or are you still figuring? That out? Yeah, I'm, I'm still wondering. Um, no, we, we. Uh, I think it for us it was there were a lot of these like gradual little moments. Uh, like there was never in my mind like this one big breakout moment where we went, "Aha, we're a real band." Like I think for many many years we felt like we were just sort of realizing things 
at our own pace and like discovering who we were as musicians and artists and writers. And, um, you know, I think there were stepping stones when we were, when we were first together and like our band was kind of fully forming in high school. That's when we met Ryan. That's when we met Zach and we kind of came together and picked a band name and actually started booking some shows locally and, um, writing our own songs, uh, and putting together, like trying to record our own EPs. And eventually we did a full length kind of unsigned, um, <clears throat> and all of that stuff took place through the four years that we were in high school. And I think, you know, there were moments in there where I think it went from being like, okay, we're sort of this basement, uh, DIY pseudo cover band kind of writing our own music to transitioning into like, oh, there's actually a scene forming around our band now in the Baltimore area. And there were a bunch of other great bands as well. You know, there, there was a band called Adelphi, there was a band called Underscore. Um, and you know, they, they all sort of had these like, record deals at the time that, that kind of elevated the whole scene and had all these local bands kind of chasing the dream. Um, this is sort of was- runoff even from, you know, Baltimore has this strange history of, of music where I think people overlook, they overlook Baltimore, but the, mm-hmm. there's a huge alternative rock scene that ended up coming out of there, obviously, notably like Good Charlotte and stuff. There's a lot SF of big bands that have come out of... <laughs> Out of Baltimore, why Baltimore? You, you know what? You know I was gonna say because this when Alex started talking about it, it reminded me right around right around when we started playing music, the New Jersey like drive-through record scene was becoming like a really right. big thing, and mm-hmm. it bled a little bit down into Baltimore, Maryland. You know, Adelphi, one of the bands we grew up playing, would sign the drive-through records, like Alex said. Um, so I think we were kind of in this cool, unique position where we were kind of being driven by all these other bands around us who were pretty good. You know, we weren't like, there was a strong music scene in Baltimore and I think it just kind of drove us into wanting to be better. And we were seeing those bands. Yeah. We were seeing those bands do it and very much do it on their own terms uh, is how it came across. You know, it was a very DIY kind of approach to music and, and seeing bands like my chemical romance taking back Sunday, um, elevate the way they did it kind of and it was only you know it was next door it was just over in new jersey and so like it inspired us to to want to do that to create a scene locally for ourselves um and you know we we quickly saw like it go from being church halls filled with maybe 50 kids to real venues in the baltimore area filled with a thousand kids and you know to have that happen before you've even graduated high school um May really, you know, back to your original question, it kind of that really validated us at first and made us feel like, hey, there's something here that's not just this isn't just a weekend thing, you know, we, the, we have a shot at this. And I think, you know, it was right around the time that music and, and music networking was happening as well online, you know, MySpace and, and getting MySpace music profiles and pure volume that all started bubbling. And that was a huge part of it as well, because we could see these things happening in adjacent cities to ours. And then we started reaching out to those bands and trading shows and saying like, hey, you come down and play this show at our church hall with us, and then we'll come up and do one in Jersey. And, you know, that was... That was a really validating thing. I think that's when labels started taking notice of like, oh, these kids are like putting themselves in a van and driving themselves to these other places. And <clears throat> is it because you know, the other bands? The time, sorry, I was getting, not to interrupt. But is it because the other bands that you said that you know the, you kind of grew up with? They're they're all getting record deals. So did you even know when you're t- saying labels are starting to notice? You know that kind of means nothing to somebody who's in. Who's not in New York or LA, unless right. you know, like, what does that mean that somebody from label a label n- notice you? 
in your shoes there, that means that can't mean what it means now. We had no idea what it meant. We just knew we wanted right. to be signed. We just knew that quote unquote real artists and real bands had record deals. So at the right. time it was like that's obviously what we need to do. We need to sign a deal. And you know, I think it was like Fred from Triple Crown called like somehow got my number and called me and I was like in disbelief that someone from a label was calling me. Uh, and then it trickled over to like John Janik at Fuel by Ramen. And then it was, uh, you know, Hopeless Records started kind of, you know, sniffing around. And um, this was all around the time that we had just recorded a full length ourselves. You know, we, we sort of, um, yeah, kind of DIY'd it with a local producer. And um, yeah, there were just some little things that were starting to bubble under the surface that got some people paying attention. The local producer. <clears throat> Who's the local producer? His name is Paul Levitt, and he's a very, very talented man. Um, we worked with him, actually, uh, with Matt Squire on our first full-length album as well. Oh, that's so crazy. So when you got the deal, you brought him along with you? In a it way. Was, yeah, it was interesting. With, with, so Matt Squire, for those who don't know, you know, um, at the time was doing the first Panic! at the Disco record. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he got the Panic! at a Disco record was because... He had just done the receiving end of Sirens record. And Pete Wentz heard that record and was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And kind of, you know, sent Panic, you know, to to Matt Squire to Baltimore to do this, to do their first full length. And so Squire did Panic, and then he got into Boys Like Girls and Cues We Aim For, all bands who kind of came up at the same time as us. So it all was. And so when around when that time was when that was happening, Paul Levitt and Squire knew each other. So it was kind of cool of Squire to bring on Paul Levitt. You know, kind of made us feel more comfortable because we were yes, we were going with a big, much bigger producer, but we had Paul Levitt engineering it and keeping it a little bit. You know, keeping us in familiar territory. Yeah. The if you're a kid now, you're probably getting a computer as your first instrument. For sure, you know? and yeah. I feel like you guys are part of the last generation of n- sort of this n- natural bands. You know, I don't know how you would describe it, but like real like people who play instruments who get together to play songs together. Um, what's the difference of the environment then versus now for bands? Well, I think it's just that it's it's as you described it. You know, we were just kids. I would go over to Jack's house after school and I would bring my guitar and we would plug into his amps and just turn them up real loud and, and play along to like the CD player. And that was the, that was the first version of our band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't, you know, and, and now I think the big difference is you can, you can be a kid in your room, uh, with a computer and, uh, you know, whether or not you know how to play an instrument, um, makes something that sounds pretty damn good. Um, you know, song wise. And it's, it's, I think the difference was like we needed some people around us to kind of help us get there. You know, we needed Paul Levitt as a producer locally to kind of back us and, and record us and let us get in his room and, and play our songs. Um, teach us, before, teach us what a chorus is. <laughs> exactly. Before we could really like, before we could really hone our sound. Whereas now you can kind of do all that experimentation by yourself, you know, before you even launch anything. That 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 teaching from somebody who said that this is what a chorus is. I think we all remember who that first producer is, who kind of says, "No, you could put this over here and make this verse over here, or shorten this verse, or add this like this little part here, the bridge or pre-chorus or whatever it is." And you don't think of it 
because we all think we know. And if, but if you're not a prodigy who just knows at 14, and we can list those people, you actually have to learn it from somebody. And some you trust those people who teach you. You yeah, guys yeah. must have been in the room, you know, with the right people at that time. It's yeah, an, and that evolution. Sorry, I was just going to say that evolution yeah. happened very naturally between us connecting with Paul and then going in with Matt Squire right after. It was sort of this like we were graduating as we went, you know, like Paul I think was great because he sort of embraced our young natural raw energy and and the things that we were putting out there he would record and he would, you know, obviously he was producing, he was giving suggestions, but really it was when we hit the studio with Matt Squire that we had our first experience with someone that went like, "That's not a chorus. That's you know, a bridge. That's, that's yeah. your bridge. Yeah. You know, you need like we need to tweak this and make the chorus feel like a chorus." And the first time that we all went, "Hey, fuck you, man! <laughs> like, don't change our art." But also at the same time, like, oh, we listened. Right. We listened. Yeah, you know what listened. I mean. It was it was that simultaneous thing of being like having to strip back your ego and be like, "He's right. I don't know what I'm doing because I'm." 17 yeah. and I don't have much experience doing this and I we should listen to the producer but yeah I mean it was really the time that he gave us some solid direction and we actually learned from that do you know what's super interesting Alex that's a great point is we can go back and listen to our, our first record with Squire is called so wrong it's right we have all the demos that we came into the studio with um, the recordings of those so we can kind of go back and see what he did to the songs to make them better and mm-hmm. like Alex said, like like song like a chorus is actually you know, used to be used to be like didn't exist, and the, the chorus was the bridge. And he'd be like, "That's not a chorus. Like that's a cool part, but it's not it's not reflecting the message of the song enough to be an actual chorus." And that's stuff yeah. that it's cool to be able to go back and hear what was different. It's interesting because I think back, and it's like almost our writing back then, especially with my melodies and and lyrics, it was very stream of consciousness. It was less. Um, Less about figuring out parts and like what you know does the chorus feel like a chorus and things like that. It was kind of just however it flowed off the tongue, and so you know sometimes it worked out and sometimes more often than not it didn't. It just sounded like me rambling, and so that's where like we really started to dig in and kind of refine that. And it was you know it was definitely the first moment in my experience uh, where it clicked and I went okay I, I'm starting to see you know these these bricks and how you're supposed to kind of lay them together. The parts really, you know, we talk obviously a lot about song math and we talk about all this, you know, symmetry and whatnot. And what that does is it raises the batting average. Mm -hmm. It's not that you can't stream a conscious, write something brilliant. Mm -hmm. You just have to write a whole lot more of them to land on something that happens to fit the the rules versus if you kind of, you can write... An average song, um, pretty easily if you know the math, you know. Right. It's hard to write a hit song, but it's easy to write, you know, an average song. And when you're stream of conscious, it's almost really, it's really, maybe you're, maybe it's hard. It's still hard to write a hit song, but it's really easy to write a bad song. <laughs> sure. Do you know what I mean? When it's just stream of consciousness, because then you don't even know. What the sections are, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you get confused. Yeah, you can you make th- a mess much easier than you can put something together that feels cohesive and and planned out. I, I've I've written with you guys a couple times in different phases, and you guys are really good collaborators. So you guys learned along the way. Is it 
was it that experience from the beginning with Squire? Do you think that did that inspire you to keep diving in more, or is it that every time you have a session, you learn something new? I mean, I think you always take something away from a new session with with new people. There's always something to be learned, and everybody brings you know their own skill set and their own set of tricks to the table, which I, I've always really valued. Um, it's funny going back to that same record, So Wrong It's Right, that was actually the first time I was encouraged to go and do a co-write. Um, and coming from this sort of like pseudo, quote-unquote, punk, pop-punk scene, for I remember at the time feeling very like off-put by it and being like, no, this isn't like, this is going to kill my credibility if I'm not the sole songwriter and we're, we didn't do this as a band. And it was like, so quickly did I then realize like, no, like the heart of music is collaboration and um, it was it was that record. It was my first experience. I went up to New York and worked with uh, with Sam Hollander and Dave Katz, and um, you know they were working out of the the Crush slash Ozone offices at the time. And um, you know it was it was really cool. We we ended up writing a song that made the album Hollywood You Turn Me On, and um, it was you know a foray into that world of of people that you know me learning that there were people out there that wrote songs for a living. And uh, that opened up a whole world for me because instantly I was transported to this the other side of this thing where I was like, oh man, like that's really cool. And they really we, know what they're doing. We didn't even know that songwriters <clears throat> existed. You know what I mean? That like wasn't a thing. And, and, and we were also 18 years old. We were young. But um, yeah, it was a really cool experience because I remember Alex sending me the song after that trip and I was like, holy crap. This is like, you know, we were writing good music at the time and but there's something about like the melodies and the the song structure that felt really strong about that song, and I thought it had, even that day alone had elevated Alex as a writer. He'd, he'd learned so much, you know, just from that. You guys got signed to Hopeless Records, just taking another step backwards in 2006. That's like, I don't know, were you, weren't you guys like seniors or? Yeah, were, like, I was. My mom signed the deal. I was 17. We were still in, <laughs> in high school. Yeah. How we was, had our parents at the at the meeting, and and yeah, we were still we had like I think four months of high school left before we were actually out and able to go on the road as a signed band. How does that help or stunt the growth of a seventeen year old? I would say, I mean, it, it we did the majority of our growing up from that point on on tour. Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't know necessarily that it stunted. Uh, us as people, but it certainly changed the entire landscape of, of you know how we thought about the world. Because from then on, our world was music and tour. And I'm sure, as you know, Ross, like our band from the get go, the second we graduated high school, like we were on tour, and that was like the our that's always been our bread and butter as a band, and it's it's been our bread and butter for ten plus years. But like you know, we did we did our formative years. Uh, we didn't go to college. We we spent them in a van with each other, you know, chasing the Warp Tour and various other tours at the time. Very old school, looking mm-hmm. back, but you know, I wouldn't change it for sure. If you guys met a seventeen-year-old who was about to sign a record deal, what would you tell them? Oof. I always think back. <laughs> I always think back to to if I could give myself a few words of advice back then. I mean, one one big one, and it's it kind of sounds. A little bit trite when you say it out loud now, but like I, I would definitely encourage myself to stick to my guns a little bit more. Um, there were times throughout uh, the course of this band where um, I think 
we were so impressionable and we were so, we were always chomping in the bit at the bit to do the right thing and take the next step that was the right next step. And so we looked outward for a lot of those things. We said, you know, tell us what to do. Tell us how to do this. Tell us, how to, tell us how to elevate this thing. And sometimes that works, but a lot of the time, because you're the artist and because you're the, it's your vision. And ultimately, while we were being directed and shaped by people as we grew, the vision was us and it was always us. And I think sometimes it's easy as an artist to let that get clouded or to, for, to forget that along the way. Um, and so I think I would have, I think I would have told all four of us to like stick to your guns a little more and trust you, yourselves about what you want all time low to be. If, if someone is approaching you at, you know, 17, 18 years old and likes your music and wants to take you to the next level, there's a reason why they're coming to you because they like your music. You're good, mm-hmm. you're talented, you have a good eye, you have, you know, you have a vision. There's so something. there's something there. So if you change that for something else, then you can lose, you can lose a lot, you know? So Wrong It's Right is the first full-length album after the deal. And it goes gold. And... You know, Dear Maria Kamian's a a big record. Do you start believing your own hype? No, because at the time, none of those things had substantiated. You know, we we were not. It was the record did not go gold back then. The record the the single did not go. I think it's double platinum now, but it did not happen back then either. Um, you know what what's crazy about that album and the the trajectory of this band, and we'll get to that later, I'm sure. But like. It has been a slow burn in a lot of ways. There have been a lot of things that have happened and developed and grown over time. And so, you know, back then it was really, we were building. We were just building. Um, we were, you know, we put that album out and we put an EP out before that, but we put that full length right. out. And that was really the time that we were finally getting some real tours in front of some bigger crowds and people were starting to take notice, but we absolutely did not even know to believe the hype because we didn't really know the hype was there. You know, there was no metric at the time for that. We weren't ch- topping charts. We didn't have a ton of radio at the time. Um, the, the record was selling well, but it wasn't like doing astronomical numbers. So it's like we just kind of sat back and, and got to work. That's what it felt like for us, I think. Um, at that time, you start touring with Sonny before he's Skrillex. Um, it seems like, you know, there's this really cool thing about people who are in bands who end up, uh, becoming writers, producers. There's like, there's a long history of, you know, every, every song already worked with has probably been in a band at some point. Yeah. Um, that's such a unique trajectory from him being Sonny to Skrillex. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll never forget. We we were on. Yeah. I think it was maybe the first year that we did Warp Tour. Uh, he was fronting from first to last, and I think it might have been the last tour that they did together, or one of the last, because he lost his voice pretty badly at the time. Um, and it was like you know that happened, and then maybe a year later we did this tour where Sonny came out and he was doing a solo thing, and it was this electronic, very vibey kind of almost dancey. like Nine Inch Nailsy. Yeah, but it wasn't. It was not. It had not found its its. Home in like dubstep yet he I, it wasn't like it was like he was fleshing it out in his head but doing it live in front of people and it was really interesting to see because you could tell there was sort of this like transformation happening in in him 
uh, yeah, and like you know, probably a year after that tour, he was Skrillex, and he was like he, the biggest on, thing on in the world. that tour. He played us, he played us like early Skrillex music, and it was at that point I'd never heard dubstep, and I it was a whole it was a genre that didn't exist, so I was very confused to be honest. I was like, what am I listening to? You know what I mean? Is like it was so. Different I think it from ex- what it was, existed, but it was so far from our world that it was from just, our world. Was, you know, we we had and no I, idea. It was super cool, and like, and I could tell it was like he's very talented, but I just I couldn't understand the music. Um, and then it turned into what it did, and I was like, holy crap, this is. I guess that's why I'm not Skrillex. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a note in here that says Young Kelly Fox attended that tour. Yeah, oh, in, Ari- in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Kelly Fox for people. People I have she, you know, runs my publishing company with me, and um, she actually had a few questions for you guys, and so I figured that now's a good time to to bring in the Kelly Fox segment because we're Let's talking go, about. Let's go, Kelly. You know, she's um, she has a few things. She did say first, thanks for letting me crowd surf in a blazer in my late twenties to songs I listened to when I was seventeen. And my Mustang, I so, uh, she That's does appreciate that. I did watch her crowd surf last at our last uh, Fonda show. I was dying so good. Uh, oh my God, yes. But she did have some. So she had one question that I, I, I like. She said, "What song from your entire discography do you feel made the biggest impact on you as a writer?" Mm. Made the biggest impact as a writer. I think this is a tough one to answer, but I, I always rewind back to. The our album Nothing Personal, which is the the one that followed So Wrong It's Right. Um, there was a lot more collaboration and co-writing on that record. Uh, we actually did that record with multiple producers as well. Um, it was the first time I worked with Butch Walker and like kind of learned his process. And we wrote Damned If I Do You, Damned If I Don't, which went on to be at the time uh, kind of our most successful song commercially. Um, and my my takeaways from the experience with him were so valuable because it was like he's sort of this perfect encapsulation of doing it your own way but doing it right and finding success in that um and, but you know doing it without trying too hard to fit some kind of mold um and it was a big thing because you know at the time when you're having like an increasing and increasing level of success you sort of it it gets hard not to want to chase things and there's a bit of a dangerous game that you play when you chase because obviously you can chase a sound that's working, you can chase a thing, uh, but does it come at the sacrifice or the detriment of your, quote, I hate to use this term, but like your brand or what people know your band for? And then it's kind of, you're always in this sort of like ebbing and flowing juxtaposition between you know whether or not you're selling out your core in order to chase this thing or whether you're growing your your music by going that direction. And and Butch really taught me that there is a, a middle ground and a happy way to kind of try and do that. Um, and yeah, so I probably damned if I do, damned if I don't, or maybe weightless because of how it at the time sort of like it took some elements that we had never brought into our music before, but still married that with uh, kind of the ethos of like fast paced, loud pop punk um, and blended those two things that I think that song's had a lot of staying power in our career. Jack, what about you? Uh, my my writing journey is a lot different than Alex's because it mine started not that long ago, you know, maybe like a, a year and a half ago when I when I first met with you, and so for me, I'm gonna have to say Monsters because it's not because of the success of the song. This was even way before the song had come out. It was the first time that I had left a kind of I guess a session. We we all were together, but the first time I'd left like a song session and been like, wow, I feel like 
I had a real part in, you know, I, I felt like I had contributed to the song in, in a way that I had never contributed before. For sure. And so, yeah, that, and in, a, in you know, in a, a band I was a part of, not just a song for someone else. So it felt really good, and I think it changed the way, I think it gave me a little bit of confidence moving forward in songwriting. I love that. She also yeah. added, uh, who's the assistant now? <laughs> Oh, that's funny. God, <laughs> I love her. God, love okay, her. Okay, so um, you know, you guys end up on TV, and we're going back to two thousand eight. We're going, we're we're going back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You end up on TV, you guys. Uh, you know, this is still in like the building phase. You guys have a beef with Metro Station? <laughs> no, not no no real beef. I we. Uh, we used to tease them for that song a little bit, and I feel bad about it now, to be completely Why? honest. But I don't know, because it was just, we were being bullies, and it was kind of shitty. Uh, um, do you ever tell them that? Uh, tell them what? That I feel bad? Yeah, I guess you are right now. Yeah, I, you've heard it here first. No, I, I unfortunately, I haven't really been in touch with any of them uh, in recent years, and I don't know how I would get in touch with them. But, but yeah, I, it's one of those things. It was like, it started as a joke, then it kind of became like, a joke with some resentment, I think, from uh, from them because we just wouldn't let up on it, and uh, and then we forgot about it. And I don't know that sort of they did, and it just you know it kind of sucks. It was considering stupid. how crazy beef used to be with bands, like we were pretty like this is pretty mellow because I remember like like growing up and watching like the VMA red carpets, like there was like fights sometimes. You know what I mean? Like like <laughs> we, bands used to bands used to like really beef, and like we didn't. By the time we'd started doing like Warp Tour and all that stuff in like the mid to like the early two, like 2006, 2007, like, like it, it stopped being cool to beef and it started being cool to like camaraderie was such a thing. Yeah. Like, and this is, this like, is a bigger thing yeah. too because like we kind of built our ethos around like, I think of two bands when I, when I think of how we came up. It was kind of like the banter, like our music was one thing and then our stage show and our banter was kind of another thing. And we very much built that off of like seeing bands like Blink-182 and Green Day and No Effects go out there and talk a bunch of shit and have a ton of fun and like say things that were a little bit off the wall or absurd or inappropriate or whatever. And we were very self-deprecating as well. And I think from that stemmed this idea of like, we can sort of poke fun at people and no one will really get too hurt because we do it to ourselves too. But then over time, I just think it like, it wasn't really who we were anymore. And we kind of, outgrew it a little bit and yeah now i look back i'm like were we just jerks <laughs> probably it's a weird thing also i mean i guess when it, you know you, your formative years are on tour with other bands doing whatever they're doing and some of them everyone's at a different point in their life and yeah you're communicating with it, it's so hard to explain how small your life is when you go from high school to a touring band and you could be in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people annually and your life just seems like it gets smaller and smaller because the more you experience this stuff the fewer people you have to share it with it becomes just like really like tunnel vision life sure it becomes isolating and it's it's like i think ultimately it's what brought our band closer together yeah because we became our own little family unit that looked out for one another and made sure everyone was kind of okay um but yeah you're absolutely right like you it doesn't exactly broaden your horizons in the in terms of life experience because you're experiencing it through this hyper focused pinpoint lens that like most other people don't ever get to get a glimpse of why does your why did your band figure it out like i always i always make the joke that being in a band sucks <laughs> um <laughs> It's a pretty short joke. Yeah, I love that joke. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> pretty short joke. 
<laughs> but like, I think everyone has this assumption that you're on, you're on tour and like, you know, you're like doing warp tour and stuff. Like, this is so fun. And but bands always break up because it's it's fucking hard. Yeah. I think like, at the end of the day, it is very difficult. It, it's very alienating. It removes you from any semblance of a normal life in a lot of ways. Um, but why and, did you guys? Work? You know, at the same time, it's also like uh, it's for us. It was extremely rewarding at the same time because we felt this constant, gradual growth, um, and we all really, genuinely were there for each other. So, anytime there was sort of a downer or a, a moment that was kind of uh, feeling. Like leaving us downtrodden, like we sort of said, you know, quitting, breaking up, it's not an option because if one of us goes, the band falls apart. So it was kind of this never, it was this thing of like, this is family and there's no alternative. Like we have to see this yeah. through. And, and it's, it's I think like we kind of, from an early way. age, we understood that there were yeah. ebbs and flows to the whole thing. There were going to be some low points and, and things that didn't work out and that you couldn't let those moments kind of define where you were overall in your career because I think that's what sometimes breaks bands up. They hit a cold spot cold spell uh and it it's hard to get over that hump um and we've always looked at it as like you know if we stick to it and stay true to ourselves you know fingers crossed a little bit of luck and and everything uh you know we'll 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 get there i you kind of touched on this earlier alex um is you said it was a gradual growth and at the time of us coming coming up on warp tour and stuff was we'd see so many bands have a hit on radio while still being on Warp Tour and kind of shoot up overnight and their crowds start getting bigger like the next day. Yep. Literally over, overnight success. And a lot of those bands don't exist anymore. And at the time, I remember hating them and being jealous and, and all that. And maybe it kind of broke them up because they couldn't, like that's a lot to handle one night, the overnight success type of thing. And I feel like because we never really, we, you know, we constantly just grew a little bit, a little bit over the time, over time. And I think it kind of made us more prepared for what's to come. You know, everything was was manageable because it wasn't like we woke up one day and we couldn't leave our houses because we're the Beatles. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You guys signed to Interscope at the you know, 2009, 2010, something like that. And Dirty Work is really the album that kind of changes everything, at least as far as like outside of the world that, at least from from my perspective, that's when it was like, oh yeah, people know who you guys are. It was like a lot of credit. Um, did you recognize that it was having that kind of impact outside of, you know, your world? That feels like that's like the first time where it's like you're, the band just, I don't know, that feels like the turning point to me. Is it not? 
it, it it's such an interesting like story to that cycle because we we you know we got bought out we signed to Interscope and it was it was a I would say it was a tumultuous transition from our first label to Interscope in general because we still had records obligated to them and like you know an upstream is never an easy thing to like navigate and so there was there were aspects of it like we just wanted to get on and make our next record we wanted to create we wanted to continue uh, the momentum of what the band was building but behind the scenes there was this sort of like a little bit of a uh, a haze. Uh, that was like a bit more tense and melancholy because it was like, is this deal going to work out? Are we actually going to upstream? Um, you know, and we were thinking about all those things as we were trying to write songs for this next album that eventually came out. Um, on top of that, it happened at a really tough time to go to Interscope because, um, you know, we signed there and then, um, you know, as we made the album, we were, we were getting ready to put it out. Um, Jimmy kind of took us, Step back and and transition into beats, and uh, in doing so, took our A&R Luke with him, um, and so a big there was a big shift in our team as well. Right as we were gearing up to put this album out, so while it felt like we were poised to try and swing big on this record in in a in a mainstream sense, quote unquote, um, behind the scenes there was a lot of shifting going on, and we didn't really know our place at the label right around the time that our record came out. It's a it's a weird time, I think, for all bands though. Like that's really the I feel like two thousand mm-hmm. you know you you guys managed to survive maybe the hardest time for bands you know, since like the fifties when bands were really starting to uh, play together. It's a good it's a good point, dude. And I feel like I remember around 2011, 2012 is kind of when like rock stopped being on the radio. Like, like it disappeared. right before that, like, yeah. you know, it, there was like AFI was on the radio with December Underground and Weezer was still being played on pop radio. And like, there was, there was this moment and it kind of like left around there and like pop, club, dance, music, hip hop, everything kind of took over pop radio and bands were kind of left in the dust a little bit. Yeah. And it, it wasn't really until recently, you know, in the past couple of years where it, guitar started coming back on radio. I mean, I remember that process of making Dirty Work and, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, yeah. right? I remember that process of uh, of making Dirty Work and we were a guitar band. We're a four-piece pop rock band. And, like, I remember being in the studio getting calls from, you know, A&Rs and creative and, and stuff like that on getting mix notes and things. And it would always just be like, hey, can we make the drums sound like not drums? Can we make, can we bring the guitars down and things like that? And it was, it was really like, I think it was when the band first almost suffered its I- I- identity crisis for the first time because it yeah. was like, how, how do we rock band without rock band? <laughs> like it was yeah. that we were trying to figure out the math of like how to do this. Uh, in in the changing landscape of music and what was working at the time, when we were supposed to be elevating ourselves to this kind of next tier of of uh, you know, I guess mainstream success or whatever we were chasing at the time, and um, we were doing few, it in a yeah, few sorry interrupt few bands figured it out around that time. And the thing that kind of stands out to me is like "Gives You Hell" by the All American Rejects. Like a song like that was kind of like one of one of the only songs that was like re- like sounded like a band that was on the radio, and, uh, and you know we were still trying to. F- figure out how to make that kind of sound, how to be like a relevant rock band. 
Yeah, without you know, without fully compromising what we were trying to do, and that just got yeah. really tricky. And uh, again, with it was that it was that fight, and it was the the struggle of like our team shifting around us as well. Um, and it just we eventually we just ended up saying we got to make the record we got to make um, and hope for the best. And um, we fell back on touring once again. Like we knew that touring was was always going to be there for us, so we just hit the road. And I think we toured harder harder really in those years than we had ever toured before. And maybe since, like we we really grounded out through that record cycle. This is a, a probably a weird thing to bring up, but um, you know, Alex, you got your first you you got your first cuts outside of outside of the band around this time. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, how are you starting to aim at this point to write for other artists, or was it just sort of? How do you end up starting to get cuts without naming the bands? Like you start getting cuts. I think I just I it was sort of right place, right time. And I think at this point, I had sort of become the main writer in our band. Um I was doing most of the like I was flying, traveling a lot, going to sessions. Um and so, you know, within the writing circles, I think it was kind of my name that was getting tossed into the hats. And um you know, I, I think there were just a few people, there were some producers out there and some writers out there that said, you know, this guy has something and his band is doing something uh, unique. And um, that's when I started getting tapped to kind of like bring my influences into sessions. And it was really interesting for me because I had never really aspired to do that. You know, I it, my foray into songwriting originated with this band and it was my focus was always this band um and that was kind of the first time i got a taste of like okay my writing can be applied to something else and it was a really interesting uh time for me because i think again i I really grew and took a turn at that point and it was probably cool because you could you could write from you can write different types of music Mm -hmm. and different styles you weren't you know in in the all-time low box right uh this is a vulnerable question but I guess I'm curious, what is it like to be in a band, you know, in all these cases where you start defining, you know, it's easier for the singer to write the songs, period. You know, it's just always that way, you know, like, Jack, how did, how do you, like, you know, I'm glad that as, you know, since we first met a few years ago, like, it's cool to see you writing more and doing projects yourself, you know, for a band that's been together since, eighth grade what is it like for people to have different kinds of roles and in the band how did how yeah. do you deal with that communication if i if i can just step on you for a second jack i wanted to jump in because this kind of goes back to what you said a minute ago and i wanted to touch on it it's like how we came back together and jack became a more involved writer in the recent songs and things like that there was this i noticed and i think it started around dirty work and then onwards um, the next two records after that, I don't want to get too far ahead, but it speaks to a bigger theme, uh, especially of collaboration. Um, I think behind the scenes, there was definitely an air of like the, the, there was a, not, I don't want to say like disinterest, but like I was so invested because I was writing the songs and making the records. And then we'd go out and spend two years touring. And like, I, there was a, there was a bit of a noticeable, like, rift not rift but like there was an energy in the band of like because i was so heavily invested in the creative process and the other guys weren't they couldn't possibly be as in it as i was and that's that sometimes creates a rub because you know what when things go really well 
you know, I think sometimes the the boys were feeling disconnected from the success of things, and when it was when it was not going well, they were feeling either disconnected from uh, the responsibility of it, or like it was kind of getting. It, I started to feel like, man, did I screw up? Like, is this all on me for for us not having a hit right now, or, or whatever, you know? And there, I think in that you shouldered to, you shouldered a lot of the responsibility for sure, right? And it starts to create this little bit yeah. of attention. And like, what was interesting about that, and and where we ended up with our newest album, and sort of Jack coming back in a bigger way into the into the writing process and everything, was it was like. I think it was a very necessary step for this band to kind of circle back to our origins and our origins being, you know, the four of us in a basement writing. Uh, and like whether it was me writing the lyrics or whoever was doing, a, you know, more or less of the heavy lifting or whatever, there was a really important piece of the puzzle missing. And that was the fact that this band is a band and the four of us bring an energy to it. And uh, I think we strayed kind of far from that for a little while. And it took us kind of coming back together and refocusing to rekindle uh, what this band is truly meant to be. And I think, you know, a lot of things have to fall into place, but I think it's a big part of the reason that we are seeing the success that we're seeing now with a song like Monsters, because there was just a different energy to it. Yeah. Jack, is that how you feel about it? No, no, well, that's really well said. Um, and, And you kind of nailed it on the you kind of nailed it on the head when you were like, you know, the the three of us kind of not like lost interest, but we just didn't feel as invested in the music as much as we had in the past. And I'm sure it felt weird at the time. Looking back now, it feels, you know, kind of that's how it was. And it was, and it's all good now. But at the time I do remember, you know, Alex kind of being like, you know, why, why am I the only one that cares right now? And not about the band, just about, you know, just the songs, just the actual, like, you know, the music and, and so it was, it was, I think, you know, I think it was really important and big for Alex to kind of like re reinvolve everyone again. And I think that's, you know, it goes back to why, when people ask why our band's still together, I think a really important part is everyone is very comfortable with their role in the band. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's taken a lot of work to get here. You know, that's not just something that happens like overnight. Like you're the bass player, you're just a drummer, you're just a guitar player. Like, no, we, we, we've had to kind of like, we're like a Rubik's a Rubik's cube, and like we're like, con- like turning it to try to figure out like what what works and what makes everyone happy and comfortable. And that's you yeah. know it took years to get there, but now we're here. And roles evolve, and they they need to be mm-hmm. redefined, and those conversations need to be had. It's like any relationship, really. But it's yeah. like you know this this band is like a, a long term, like a long lasting marriage. And you know every now and then you have to kind of like check back in and be like, is everybody happy with the way this dynamic works, and are we all on the same page? And yeah, and. And truth be told, like even I don't even I didn't know how to write songs during that time when right. Alex was doing a lot of the writing. I was in a lot of the sessions. I would just sit there and, and listen, and I didn't. I don't think I had the confidence or even the knowledge of of songwriting lyrically and melodically speaking to interject. And so I just sat in all the sessions and just kind of chilled and was like, "Oh, this is a really cool song." And it took you know I think it took a big life change and people around me like Kelly. And Kevin Sweet Talker being like, you can do this, you can try, and you need someone sometimes to wake you up and and push you in that direction. But um, yeah, so it so yes, it like kind of sucks that we weren't as involved with all the writing back then. But I don't know if I would have done it, you know, even if it was a thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, the reason why I asked you and why I appreciate your your honest answers is because you guys have made it through uh, ebbs and flows, and 
I know, uh, well, we know a couple bands that the band members don't write and despise their front man and there's no repatching it and there's like no like desire to make it something back to the way it used to be. I mean, we, I know we can name a few off the top of our heads if we wanted to. (laughs) And it's like, it's really interesting when bands, you know, you make choices along the way uh, and, and the communication to get through those tough moments are what make bands stay together or, or even like each other while they are staying together. Cause we know mm-hmm. those bands that, I mean, it's like you know. some of them I'm sure go past like the road of no return, but I'm, I'm just happy that we didn't get there. You know, I think we, yeah, we, but you guys could, yeah. you know, that's all, it's so relative, sorry to interrupt, but it's so relative no. because like, you know, at and not to jump over a couple albums, because yes, Don't Panic's big. You guys have a, a big size hit out of it. Future Hearts is a debut's number two at Billboard 200. You guys become like, it's not like you guys were not successful, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so for it to go from that and then to to where you, like to change the dynamic after albums like that to then have the success of something like Monsters is pretty sick. So, yeah, it's I'm been a, I mean, it's an amazing journey. It's almost like, you know, to give the abridged history of, of those albums, it's like, you know, coming off a tumultuous cycle that was dirty work, like there were a lot of successes and it did elevate us in a, in a kind of um, getting our name out there more in a, in a universal sense. Um, but in a lot of ways, like there were things that didn't connect, you know, the big radio hit that we hoped for didn't happen. And there were just some things that like didn't connect in certain ways. And so we ended up actually leaving Interscope after that record and re-signing with our former label, Hopeless, uh, because we kind of felt like we needed a minute to to rekindle our our base and get back to ourselves and what this band did. Um, and so Don't Panic was really that for us. It was almost a reinvention and a reimagining uh, and a return to form, quote unquote, of like this band. And then we grew again from there. You know, that record turned into Future Hearts, which I think established us again, uh, as this sort of maybe a mainstay in the genre. Um, and then from there, you know, we, we signed another deal, um, and, and made Last Young Renegade. And it was Last Young Renegade that was like, you know, back on a major label, trying some new things. It was creatively a really interesting time for us because I think Last Young Renegade was the precursor to us taking a bit of a hiatus, not hiatus, but a break from from all-time low, creatively speaking. Um, and it led to Jack and I actually branching off and, and getting into some of our own side projects. And I think that was a huge part. I don't want to speak for you, Jack, but like that was a big part for you where you really came into your own and flourished Realizing that you could write, you know, and that you could learn to do this again. Um, and I think it allowed me creatively to scratch some itches that maybe I was chasing on that record, Last Young Renegade, wanting to do some different things, um, that didn't necessarily at the time align with the sound people were accustomed to for our band. You know, it ended up being a great album for us, but at the same time, I think they were all these little necessary stepping stones for us to get to where we are now. And I don't think we'd be where we are now without, you know, some of those twists and turns. Yeah, oh, it, Last Young Renegade, it, it's really interesting that it gets a lot of, it feels like it gets a lot of critical acclaim. Um, but because it, you know, it didn't react as well as the previous album, do you did that change? Do you feel like there was a commercial reason why you guys took a break then after that? Or is it more like just you guys have been 
basically nonstop since you were in eighth grade. I think it was more that. I think we were just pretty, yeah. we were pretty burnt out. And I think creatively, like, I, I didn't, I didn't know where to go from there. I didn't have a creative thread to pull for All Time Low. I just didn't know what All Time Low was supposed to sound like after that. It just, there was no channel for me. Um, right. So personally speaking, I needed to kind of just step away and do something a bit different and not think about it for a while. I think sometimes space and time can be a, a great healer and a teacher, you know? So that was kind of my approach to it. Yeah, we were just tired. I would say we were really burnt out. Um, but there was there was an obvious, there was also an obvious air of like, you know, we tried some different things creatively, and while it did get a lot of critical acclaim, and we got all these like new looks and great reviews and things that we had never had before as a band. Because to be honest, like speaking quite candidly here, like our band's never really been like a like a press darling or anything like that. You know, we we are we are a three out of five star band. <laughs> like like most albums, three and a half stars is our is our spot. And we like we came to kind of just know that and accept it. And then it's like, you know, then we put out Last Young Re- Renegade and it was like four stars, five stars. What, and I was like, know, oh no, we're fucked. Yeah, <laughs> what's like... going on here? What's going on? And yeah, it just it just kind of left like it checked all these new boxes for us, which our band like fortunately we've been so so lucky to continue doing that over time. But yeah, it left us a little bit creatively just confused and lost. We were kind of swimming going like well what the hell do we do now? Yeah. Well, you guys sort of answered that by doing your side projects. Um, both of you guys have cool side projects. Um, you know, Jack, Who Hurt You, that song, I think I texted you once it came out because I was like, yeah, that song's great. So good. You, you know what's crazy about, about all that is I, I was thinking about this today when I was thinking about the podcast before kind of mentally preparing myself. I was <laughs> I thought about... You know, I kind of mentioned it earlier, like Kelly was one of the people that tried to convince me to do songwriting. And so one of the ways she did that was setting up a meeting with you. And so I'd written one song at that point with Kevin and I came into the studio with you and I played you the song and you kind of like broke down, you kind of broke down the song and gave me some advice. And I took that and we went and next song we did was Wish We Never Met. So I really, really took a lot from that meeting and it kind of gave me a lot of confidence and and also, it was important to hear how you got started because, um, you know, it's it, it's it, it helped to find because all I kind of knew from songwriting was Alex, Alex's journey, and it was interesting to hear like another songwriter's journey and to see what exactly it means to be a songwriter and what it means to bring different things to a writing room. You know, you kind of you kind of introduced me to like to the idea that you know songwriters there can be different types of songwriters in every room. You know, yeah. that can yeah. be different, good at different things. And that was the kind of the first time someone had told me that. And yeah, so that was, that was really cool to hear. I, I always think it's funny that there's, you know, if you have 16.6% of a song, which means that there are six writers on a song, what is 16.6% of a song? Is that three quarters of a pre chorus? Is, right. is that the second verse? Is that the post? Is that the drum part? What is sixteen point six percent of the song? And yet, if we most writers, when they go in the room, if they don't contribute fifty percent or a hundred percent, they feel like they didn't earn anything. Right. Yeah. And if you're, yeah. it depends the kind of writing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing a, a co-write and there are two people in the room and one guy writes everything but the title. <laughs> and the other guy writes the title, but the title's what sells the record. Isn't that worth a lot? 
Yeah. Like, what is it? What is sixteen point six percent really worth? What is twenty five percent worth? It, it. We are so used to being control freaks, or the opposite, being, you know, like ashamed of our ideas. That either mm. way, like you don't recognize that your contribution's worth the same in a session. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, you know, I mean, that. Well, like a lot of that's. That's something I learned in that thing. It's like, you know, songwriters don't have to like walk in and write an entire song. You know, oh, it can yeah. be you, like your con- your contributions can be a couple words that change the whole concept of what the song's even about. And that was kind of a, a big learning experience for me because, you know, I hadn't done too much writing before. Some of our best, some of the biggest writers we've had on this podcast, I know from writing with them that they don't do really anything in the room. What they do is like some of them are the best at saying that's not good, that's better, that's amazing, and that should be this. But they they know how to inspire the room, or they know how to they understand what a hit is better than everybody else. But they may not actually be the engine, you know. They may yeah. be like amuse. Yeah, maybe the they're, the, creativity. Maybe they're, they're the shape of the car, but they're not like they don't make it run, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, we got to talk about simple creatures, man. Mark Hoppus, dude, yeah. you are you started a project with a legend, a hero of mine. I mean, one hundred percent. It was it was one of the biggest full circle moments of my life. You know, I, I when I had the first phone call where I had just gotten off the phone with Mark, uh, and then we we went and grabbed. Um, breakfast and talked about whether, because basically the way this panned out, long story short, is um, Mark wanted to work on essentially a Mark and Friends project. And he was going to do a bunch of different tracks with a bunch of different people from music and people he'd worked with in the past and stuff like that. And we essentially got together to write a song that I would feature on for this project. Um, We did that. It went really well. The vibe was really cool. And then the next thing I know, he, you know, we meet for breakfast and he's like, is, what if this is a band? And, um, it just blew my mind because, you know, at the, I had never considered, it blew my mind for so many reasons because it's Mark from Blink who I, who got me started, uh, in a <laughs> lot of ways. But like, so you know, crazy. it was also, I had never considered a side project before. I'd never considered mm-hmm. the, the idea of another band with anyone else other than my boys. And so it was real weird. And like, I remember getting home from that breakfast and, and calling Jack and having that conversation. Like, Mark wants to start a band with me. What do I do? Like I felt, there was part of me that felt guilty about it. It was weird, oh, you know. I was just like, "This yeah. is strange," and um, it was it was such a an odd dynamic of feeling kind of guilty for even wanting to entertain this idea and and like kind of you know cheat on my band with another band. But there was also this uh, this whole thing of like, yeah, this is this is why I started. I mean, Mark is a huge part of why I started a band and and why we play music and why we wanted to tour and. Um, yeah, it was a no-brainer at that point. And, you know, Jack was the first one to be like, do it. What are you doing? Like, what are you even talking about second-guessing? Yeah. Like, you, you have to do it. And uh, yeah, I, th- I, think so. you were, I think Alex was a little bit surprised because I was, like, way too into it. I was like, dude, that's, like, that's amazing. Like, it's going to be great for our band. It's going to be great for you. It's going to be, you know, it'd be great for us to have some time off while you get to, like, learn and grow as a songwriter and also Mark Hoppus. Like, it didn't, yeah. to me, it felt like a no-brainer. I think to Alex, yeah. he had some reservations about bumming us out, you know. Absolutely. 
it's we've done some good interviews with like you know Ben Gibbard and and you know and Mark and whatnot, where you talk about these people who live in side projects, like everything's everything's a side project. Versus, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it's like nothing's real. I mean, obviously, Blink One Eighty Two and and Death Cab for Cutie are are main things in in their lives, but they they're part of communities that are totally, you know, that are. I don't know that that thrive on on side projects. It's just fascinating. Yep. It's like it's totally okay, and no one should feel bad about it. It's just an album, or it's just an idea. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that in a in the in the sexiest way. There's something really sweet about the fact that you can go and just create music with somebody new, mm-hmm. and and just see what happens, and then you still go home. Like it's yeah, like, 100%. Oh, yeah. It's and like that was, not a monogamous. You know, part of the industry but like it's okay to not be it's like I have a lot of co-writers I work, write a ton with but yeah. it's nice that like I you know it's nice when I get to write with people that I don't write with all the time you know? right. I, I I think in the past they used to be it used to like maybe in the 90s especially it was probably view it as like oh this band's not doing well so they're going to do something else you know in the late 90s early 2000s but I really don't think that's how people look at it now. You know, yeah. I think side projects are just like, oh, we're getting more music. This is sweet. You know what yeah, I mean? There's room totally. for content in every facet yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, we have to talk about, uh, you know, Wake Up Sunshine comes out. Monster is the biggest song of your career. Uh, eight weeks at number one. Uh, it's something you guys got to work on together. Uh, I mean, how this is nuts. How does it have <laughs> like 17 years later? Yeah, what? <laughs> like, why I mean, now? You know, you, you know what it is, man? And I really feel like it's like we tried so long to have something like this, and we tried so hard to have to have a song like this. And then the moment you just stop trying, it happens. And I think it's like, <laughs> I think that's just like that's sure. how life is. Like, and that's kind of how this, that's how Monsters came about, I think. For sure. There's so many things that go yeah. into it. Uh, you know, I mean, the, all, all the right things have to line up, you know, the right team, the right, the right time, the right song, the right people, the right place. But like, um, yeah, I do, I do genuinely think there's a lot to be said for the fact that we, we weren't shooting for any kind of target. You know, we, we had circled back after our side projects respectively and after doing a more experimental all time low record and we, we kind of went back to the other side of the coin and we got we rented a house and we were just writing songs and it felt very much like our beginnings you know obviously with a much different lens now because we learned so much and we were different people but but we were doing it the way we did it when we first started and there was something to be said for the fact that getting back to that point of origin led to you know the biggest song we've ever written yeah in this segment Andrew Goldstein says that it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Andrew uh, Goldstein. Every, every time, every, every time the uh, song moves up a position in the charts, we just get a text from Andrew being like, "It's not that bad." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew is is has been a longtime collaborator for people who don't know, and a, and a, one of my favorite writers and producers. And uh, yeah, he he kind of was one of the instrumental pieces of that song. Uh, and how it came together, and yeah, that guy secretly is one of the best musicians in Los Angeles. Absolutely. So you know, an interesting maybe not story secretly. About the guy's a bunch of hits now, but like, I love, you know. I love telling this this story. And we haven't actually told it enough. I feel like, considering that Goldstein is, 
you know, a big part of this band still. Um, in high in high school, we used to play local shows with Goldstein's band, hmm. and uh, there was this one song we had called "The Party Scene," which had a guitar part that I couldn't play because I wasn't good <laughs> enough, and Alex couldn't play it because he was singing at the same time, and he's not. Alex isn't going to pull a coheed and like shred while singing, so uh, Andrew would come and play the song with us on stage when we were in high school. So, <laughs> like, he legitimately. <laughs> Has always been the guest, the best guitar player in all time. Low. <laughs> yeah, so it's really come full circle. <laughs> uh, you guys have a, another single coming out, album coming out. You guys are are not slowing down just because you're not on tour for a touring band to to be doing music. Um, you know, in this era, I'm sure that's strange. Uh, what? It, any comments on that? I mean, it's just been a wild, for everyone, it's been a wild time. But, you know, we put our album out in April of 2020 when everything really locked down heavily. And um, we had never, obviously, marketed a record that way or released an album under those kinds of circumstances. And so the rest of the year was spent finding ways to connect with our fans and new a new audience. And, and you know, we're very, very lucky that the song has also gone on, Monsters has gone on to like do what it did because that's connected us in a new way with a new audience and kind of carried us through to this year in spite of not being able to uh, be out there on the road doing what we usually do. And um, at this point, we've kind of just, you know, about halfway into last year, uh, even though the record was still fresh, we kind of started the conversation about like we should start writing again because it's really the only thing we can control right now right. Um, in, in our music world so yeah we've just gotten creative again you're doing it from four different states i mean i guess you're half in maryland half in la but this band has four people who have residences in four different states zach and hawaii ryan and nashville you know uh it's so modern (laughs) yeah i mean this I will say like the spirit of collaboration has evolved uh, by force because of COVID and lockdown and everything, you know, the session, virtual sessions, Zoom sessions, uh, working on songs remotely is, you know, that's not an unusual thing anymore. And I don't think that will be an unusual thing going forward, even when we're out of this and, and everybody can be in a room safely together again. Um, it's really opened up a lot of lanes and a lot of channels to be creative in different ways. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it carries forward. All right, we're going to this next segment. It's called Five for Five. So I'm going to just list something, and I want you guys to tell me what comes out of the top of your head. Uh, Ryan. Sweetest boy, best drummer, great smile. Good looks. Wow, that's really funny. Both of you guys are like kind of blushing right now because he's that good looking. <laughs> he's a very attractive man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly is. Um, Zach. Muscle Beach. <laughs> uh, virtuoso the dude is musically just Ooh. so so talented yeah let's go with your fans the lifeblood of this band the heart passionate yeah passionate. passionate dedicated and yeah they are they are what has they're they're we've worked hard and we have managed to maintain uh for 15 16 years but we would not be what we are now without a really dedicated core fan base that's come along with us for the journey. So it's, I mean, it, it yeah. Five seconds of summer. Sweet talented. boys. Sweet, talented, talented hardworking talented. boys. 
They remind me of like, remember how like the Beatles, like everyone was a great songwriter? It's like five seconds, yeah. man. It's like they're all yeah. just so talented. They're a powerhouse for sure. Yeah. All right. This last one, uh, Alex, I'm asking you, Jack. <laughs> the secret weapon, the secret sauce. Oh, oh let's go. He's he's always been the secret sauce in this band. I mean, uh, like you know, he it's it's whether I don't it's, know about that. It's true. I mean, like it's your your vibe. The thing you bring to the table is is like an intangible. You know, it's like you can say that I've been the songwriter, or the creative, and you can say that you know Ryan's an incredible drummer and Zach's an incredible bass player, and like everybody brings something incredible to this this table. But like, yeah, there's there's something there's something to be said about being the secret sauce. You know, it's what sets you apart, makes you special. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's very nice. Jack, Alex. <sighs> Raw talent. You know, it's like, I'll never forget, like, in high school when we, or even middle school, when we'd like, go over to play guitar, like, I could, like, barely play Damn It by Blink-182, and Alex could play Metallica and Earth Sandman. And I was like, damn it, we're, like, 12 years old. And I was just like, kids always got raw talent, baby. <laughs> That's what made Blink-182 great at that time, though, man, because they could they wrote really great songs that you didn't have to be good enough to play Metallica. To play them. <laughs> yeah. It was accessible, for sure. Uh, well, thank you guys for doing this podcast. Uh, I, I looked it up. I figure, Alex, you and I wrote together in 2016, so that's five years ago, like last month, I think. So that's... That's probably the first wow. time that we work together, Jack. Mm-hmm. You've come, you've been to my house. Yeah, you know, uh, super cool. And so it's always fun when you have people that you're friends with. That on a, I don't know this. This whole world is so weird. Like we all get to work with each other and work with our friends. And you guys have done some amazing. Like the most impressive thing to me that you guys have done is stayed together. It's right. just so yeah. hard, man. This industry Thanks, man. is not. Thanks, dude. I just we know a lot of people who've had a lot of hits that are not happy with each other, right? You know, and here you are, like following up a hit after seventeen years, being like, "Yo, let's start the next thing," and you guys are already doing. I mean, come on, man. That's just not. That's not normal. It's not usual. It's it's uh, and it's earned because it takes serious work. So. I appreciate Thanks, your man. work ethic. Uh, you guys have earned all the success you've had and that you will have. And uh, much love. Dude, thank much you for saying that. It's very, very kind of you to say. appreciate it. That. Thanks for having us, dude. This was fun. Yeah. There you go. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 